Welcome to Music History Monday for March 8th, 2021. I'm Bob Greenberg, and the title for today's podcast is Dressed to Kill. If you haven't already, please consider joining me on my subscription site at patreon.com slash robertgreenbergmusic, where I blog, vlog, podcast, pontificate, review, and bloviate four to six times a week. We mark the death on March 8, 1869, 152 years ago today, of the French composer and conductor Hector Berlioz in Paris at the age of 65. We will use this anniversary of Berlioz's death for a two-day Berlioz wallow. Today's Music History Monday post will frame Berlioz as a founding member of the Romantic movement and will tell a wonderful story that conveys to us much of what we need to know about Berlioz the man, his passion, his impulsiveness, and in the end, his good sense. Tomorrow's Dr. Bob Prescribes post, which can be found at patreon.com slash robertgreenbergmusic, will delve more deeply into his biography and his proclivity for compositional gigantism, using his Requiem Mass of 1837 as an example. Background. The Romantic Era Cult of Individual Expression An idealized image of the middle-class individual dominated the thought and the art of the second half of the 18th century, a period generally referred to as the Enlightenment and, in music history, the Classical Era. This Enlightenment elevation of an idealized individual person saw its political denouement in the French Revolution and its musical denouement in Ludwig van Beethoven and the subsequent romantic that is, 19th century, cult of individual expression that followed Beethoven. Whereas classical era or Enlightenment era composers saw themselves as servants to their audiences and patrons, Beethoven and the post-Beethoven 19th century Romantic era artists saw themselves as creative heroes, beholden to nobody but themselves, free spirits, responsible only to their muse. When Franz Liszt declared that, quote, my talent ennobles me, unquote, he spoke for an entire generation of composers who believed that God and nature had endowed them with a gift and a vision that deserved to develop free of restraint. Generally but accurately speaking, these 19th century romantic composers believed entirely in the meritocracy, that their talent ennobled them. Hector Berlioz, who was born on December 11, 1803, five days before Beethoven's 33rd birthday, was the wild man of Romanticism, a larger-than-life personality who believed with the passion of a biblical zealot in the cult of individual feeling and magnified expression we have come to identify as the romantic impulse. He composed some of the most expressively over-the-top music of the 19th century. His first major work remains his most famous, 
the groundbreaking Symphonie Fantastique of 1830. Berlioz grew up the pampered and spoiled eldest child of a well-to-do doctor in southeast France. He was essentially self-taught as a musician, and as the saying goes, the problem with autodidacts, meaning the self-taught, is that they have lousy teachers. Having said that, Hector Berlioz was that one in a million for whom a lack of formal musical education was a blessing. Never having been taught the right way to do things, his imagination was left free to go wherever it wanted, unhindered by pedantic, disapproving teachers. Berlioz's genius did not become apparent until his mid-twenties, and consequently, he must be considered one of the great musical late bloomers of all time. Unfortunately, he never entirely recovered from the insecurity caused by his lack of an early and proper musical education, and it's likely that his often outlandish behavior and aggressive I-am-an-artiste persona were at least a partial cover for that insecurity. At the Paris Opera, surrounded by his fellow conservatory students, Berlioz held court as a kind of self-appointed critic, judge, and jury. The dramatist, Ernest Le Gouvet, was at a performance of Der Freischutz by Karl Maria von Weber when he, Le Gouvet, was witness to a disturbance in the balcony. Quote, One of my neighbors rises from his seat and, bending towards the orchestra, shouts in a voice of thunder, You don't want two flutes there, you brutes! You want two piccolos, two piccolos! Do you hear? Oh, the brutes! Having said this, he simply sits down again, scowling indignantly. Amidst the general tumult produced by this outburst, I turn around and I see a young man trembling with passion, his hands clenched, his eyes flashing, and a head of hair, such a head of hair! It looked like an enormous umbrella of hair projecting like an awning over the beak of a bird of prey." Unquote. Yes, Berlioz's beak, his nose. It was described on his passport as being a nez bien, a good nose, a description that does no justice whatsoever to the huge, curving, hooked schnozzel that stood like Everest in the center of his face, a nose singled out for its magnificence in every physical description of the man. Hector Berlioz was one of those people who never shut up or shut down. He craved constant stimulation and tended to suffocate those around him with his endless passions and enthusiasms. Along with his overweening passion for music, Berlioz was driven by a degree of passion that sometimes bordered on madness for women. It is a fact. Old Heck fell in love frequently, and out of simple charity we must pity the objects of his affection. His most famous crush was on an Irish actress named Harriet Smithson, for whom he carried the torch for six years before they were, most improbably, actually married. It was a disastrous marriage. It's a story that was told in Music History Monday on October 3rd, 2016. The remainder of this post 
turns to another object of his desire, a Paris-born pianist named Marie Félicité Denise Moke, M-O-K-E, who went by the name of Camille. At some point in April of 1830, Hector and Camille fell in love with one another. He was 26, she was 18. In an indiscreet bit of kiss and tell, Berlioz revealed in his memoirs that while he was a virgin at the time he fell in love with Camille, he did not remain so for long. Given the constant surveillance Camille was under from her German-born mother, who ran a lingerie shop in Paris's 9th arrondissement, how, where, and when she managed to couple with Berlioz must be considered an ongoing masterwork of ingenuity. Things moved quickly, and in late May, the lovebirds decided to marry. Unfortunately, if predictably, when Camille's mother was informed, she went ballistic. She had big plans for her beautiful, uber-talented daughter, and marrying her off to a dirt-poor composer and conservatory student, Berlioz was just about to graduate, was certainly not among them. She told Berlioz she would not even consider the possibility of marriage unless he won a Prix de Rome, a Rome Prize, the contemporary equivalent of a Rhodes Scholarship or a Fulbright Grant, and had an opera accepted for performance and performed with success. Is, is that all? Madame Molk didn't demand that Berlioz run a sub four-minute mile while playing Hava Nagila on a sack butt? Well, still, a Rome Prize and an opera. A tall order. But Berlioz was in love, and he was determined to make it happen. And incredibly, start to happen, it did. On August 19, 1830, he managed to have himself awarded the Prix de Rome by the Institut de France. The prize consisted of a government grant for five years and a two-year residency in Rome at the Villa Medici. Berlioz desperately tried to get out of the residency. The last thing he wanted was to leave Camille behind in the hands of her mother, who Berlioz referred to as the Hippopotamus. Besides, he could not possibly arrange for the performance of an opera in Paris if he was warming the pines of Rome. Warming the Pines of Rome. Pardon moi, but that was a great Respighi-inspired pun. Thank you. But he was informed that without the two-year residency in Rome, there would be no Rome prize. So, Hector and Camille exchanged engagement rings, swore oaths of undying fidelity to one another, and on December 30th, 1830, an absolutely miserable Hector Berlioz left Paris. The one happy person in all of this was the hippo herself, Camille's mother, who breathed a long sigh of relief when Berlioz left town. She had work to do, and she knew she had to work quickly. Berlioz arrived in Rome on March 9, 1831. The letter from the hippopotamus arrived on April 14th, just 36 days later, and it hit Berlioz like a vat of scalding hot olive oil dropped from Rome's Quirinal Hill. In a brutally matter-of-fact tone, 
Camille's mother informed Berlioz that her daughter Camille was going to marry Camille Playel. No typo that. They both had the same first name. The wealthy 43-year-old head of the Playel Piano Manufacturing Company. Madame Moke then informed Berlioz that she had never told him he could marry her daughter, accused him of being nothing but a troublemaker, and advised him not to commit suicide. Say what you want about Camille's mom. She would have put the mother, think Samuel Jackson, in mother-in-law. Having read the letter, Hector Berlioz, high-strung and overwrought on his good days, snapped. By his own admission, he saw with crystal clarity what he must do. Yes, yes, he would indeed kill himself. But first, he would kill that two-faced Camille, her gas bag of a mother, and that pathetic Camille Playel. I got you, uh-huh, uh-huh. He decided that he would kill them all at Camille's house in Paris. He would disguise himself, gain admittance, and then blow the suckers away. That's the way, uh-huh, uh-huh, I'll do it, yeah, uh-huh, uh-huh. Berlioz went to a dressmaker where he was measured and fitted for a lady's maid outfit, complete with a dress, a hat with a green veil, stockings, and so forth. Then he loaded a pair of double-barreled pistols he had brought with him to Rome and bought bottles of strychnine and laudanum, which he figured he'd need for himself if something went wrong with the guns. He threw a few clothes in a suitcase, packed up the guns and the finished maid's outfit, and set off for Paris. When he arrived in Genoa, he discovered that he had left the disguise behind when he changed coaches two days before. But it made no difference with what he later described as, quote, the restless, sickly air of a mad dog, unquote. He went out and bought another French maid's outfit there in Genoa. It was only after the coach left Genoa that Berlioz, who'd been obsessively imagining the murder-suicide in his mind for days, realized that perhaps he didn't really want to die after all. Back and forth the feverish Berlioz went, to die or not to die, until just outside of the city of Nice, the fever passed. He immediately wrote his family, quote, Camille is marrying Playel. The mother wrote to tell me. Don't ask me what I did or what I wanted to do when I learned of this infamy. I'm alive. That's enough. I shall live for you and my art." Unquote. We are left with a question, though, and that is, what did Berlioz do with his second lady's maid outfit? Postscript. Camille Moke's marriage to Camille Playel was nasty, brutish, and short. In 1835, after just four years, she managed to secure a legal separation, no small thing in a Catholic country at that time. We have no record of how either Berlioz or the hippopotamus reacted to the separation. Camille resumed her career as a performing pianist and took Europe by storm. The English critic Thomas de Quincey 
declared her to be, quote, the celestial pianofortist. Heaven nor earth has yet heard her equal, unquote. She became personal friends with both Felix Mendelssohn and Franz Liszt. She performed four-handed piano duos with Liszt in concert, and he dedicated to her his reminiscences of Norma and his Bravura Tarantelle after the Tarantelle of La Mouette de Portici by Alba. From 1848 until 1872, she was a professor of piano at the Brussels Conservatory. The conservatory's director, the famed François-Joseph Fetti, wrote that Camille Mouque-Playel was single-handedly responsible for establishing a Belgian school of pianism. Her legacy secure, she died in Brussels on March 30, 1875, at the age of 63, having outlived Hector Berlioz by six years. We resume in tomorrow's Dr. Bob Prescribes post with Berlioz's epic Requiem Mass. Thank you. To sample and download one or all of my many courses on subjects musical produced by The Great Courses slash The Teaching Company, please visit my website at robertgreenbergmusic.com.